the right hand of the Lord, prosopological exegesis, and Jesus' Trinitarian messianism. Irenaeus, celebrated image of the Son and the Spirit as the two hands of God, is far too rarely contextualized, even within his own work. It appears several times, but the foundational text comes in Adversus Heresea's Book 4, just after an affirmation that, quote, it is impossible that the Father can be measured. His unattainable height of love has nevertheless been revealed in his word and wisdom. This comment refers back to a highly evocative statement several chapters before, where Irenaeus describes the Son as the metron, the measure of the immeasurable Father. Continuing in the present passage, Irenaeus then offers a monotheistic exegesis of Genesis' creation account, or two accounts, to be more exact. I quote, And God formed man, taking dust of the earth, and breathed into his face the breath of life. Therefore angels did not make us, nor did they form us, nor indeed could angels make an image of God, nor could any other besides the true God, nor could a power far removed from the Father of all things, virtus longe absistens a patre universorum, for God did not need these beings to make what he had himself beforehand determined to make, as if he himself did not have his hands. Quasi ipsit suas non averat manus. For always present with him are the Word and Wisdom, the Son and Spirit, by whom and in whom he made all things freely and of his own will, to whom he also speaks when he says, Let us make man after our image and likeness. The passage you see is framed by the quotation from Genesis 2 and the quotation from Genesis 1. It is well known that Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image, was by an early date already a problem text for Jewish monotheism. Against his Gnostic interlocutors, Irenaeus here obviously means to attribute all creative agency to God, to the exclusion of any outside demiurgic helpers. The a priori oddity of reconfiguring a defense of monotheism around a kind of two powers conception, albeit two powers, quote, not far removed from the Father, is a bold strategy to say the least. Yet the Lord God's modeling of the clay in Genesis 2-7 has suggested the image. The hint of an embodied God and a physical imago should not be overlooked, moreover. Quasi ipse suas non aberat manus. The idea must, of course, be properly contextualized. The imago dei is somehow impressed not only upon the soul, through a likeness born of reason, but upon the body as well in our two intelligent hands. It is suggestive, I think, to view these twin cosmogonies in Genesis 1 and 2 as providing parallel rhetoric of verbum and manus. If in the majestic discourse of Genesis 1 the Lord creates by his sovereign word, in the anthropomorphic account of Genesis 2 his hand becomes the agent of creation. It is true that the word yad or yami never appears, just as devar is also wanting, Later, exegesis supplied what was implicit, however. Thus, for Ezra, for instance, has no hesitation in adding dextra tua to the creation narrative. You brought him, that is, Adam, to that paradise which your right hand planted before the earth came to be. To Enoch says, the Lord, with his own two hands, created mankind. In the facsimile of his own face, both small and, both small and great, he created them. 
It is useful in binding God's logos to his hand to recall an ancient philosophical topos, celebrating that member which Aristotelian tradition came to call the organum organorum. Anaxagoras said that man was the wisest of all animals because of his hands, which Aristotle reversed, making wisdom the cause and calling hands analogous to the soul. In Confessions 8, Augustine muses upon the perfect immediacy linking the mens and the manus, such that, quote, it is almost impossible to distinguish command from execution. Heidegger, in his Parmenides, stands fully within this ancient perspective. Man himself acts, handelt, through the hand, hand. For the hand is, together with the word, the essential distinction of man. Only a being which, like man, has the word, can and must have the hand. The hand sprang forth only out of the word and together with the word. The hand thus becomes the corporal locus of immaterial reason. As the instrument of intelligence par excellence, it is not without further interest that the basic measure in both Greek and Hebrew, as in most ancient cultures, was precisely the hand, the cubit, literally the fist and forearm. Just as one counts with the digits, one marks off space with a span. The hand thus embodies at once both number and measure. Thus, in a creation text that found enormous echoes in the rabbinic context, the Lord is he who, quote, measured, madad, the waters, in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, that is, of his fingers. The hand of God is his cosmic metron, his instrument of creation. Metatron, that shadowy chief demiurge of Jewish tradition, bears a name which is said to be identical to the Lord's and plausibly derives either from the Greek metron or Latin metator, measurer. And it is indeed Metatron's peculiar job to measure God, being himself measured as one cosmic span of the divine forefinger. Seated as one of the famous two powers in heaven, in uh, Babylonian Talmud Chagei, this sharer of the divine throne is understood in certain texts as the hypostatic hand of the deity himself. Such curious ancient associations invest this biblical anthropomorphism with an intriguing depth of great value in approaching Irenaeus' Trinitarian Theologumenum. Together with the philosophical meditations just sketched, it is above all the parallel established by the very shape of revelation that clarifies Irenaeus' easy movement from the image of God's two hands to the concepts of word and wisdom. Genesis itself invited the identification through its bipartite creation account, while the notion of hands as such implies the ad mensuram instrument of God's ad extra action, the economic manus of his imminent mens. Coupled with his reading of the famous plural in 126, let us create in our image, the picture of the primordial potter thus yields both an incarnate image of the two-handed creator and the sun and the spirit as the two co-essential instruments internal to God's unique creative power. Efforts like that of Irenaeus to address Genesis 126, which he has done in a singular way, through its graphic fusion with Genesis 2-7, are illustrative of a wider exegetical problematic in the history of Trinitarian thought. Indeed, in a dense and seminal article written in 1961, 
Carl Anderson carefully traced the initial appearance of the language of person, prosopon, in second and early third century theology to exactly the type of prosopographische exegese on display here in Adversus Herseus. Let us create. Tis lege prostina kai peritinos. Who is speaking, to whom, and about whom? These questions ancient interpreters routinely and systematically asked and sought to answer. Ultimately rooted in the work of Alexandrian Homeric scholars and the rhetorical exercises of the Greco-Roman age, prosopoeia and epopoeia, and well-known today as an interpretive method to readers of Augustine through the excellent studies of Michael Pedreovitz, solution by person, lusus ectu prosopu, or prosopological exegesis, addresses the problem by positing the adequate prosopa. Applied to biblical text, this or that enigmatic verse is set in the mouth, say, of the Father, and thus said to be spoken ek prosopu patros, from the Father's person, Far flung as the Father's prosopological reading of Genesis 1.26 may seem, there's hardly a technique limited to the divine conversation about creation, or limited to patristic authors. Recently, Matthew Bates' ambitious monograph, The Birth of the Trinity, has advanced Anderson's claim, demonstrating that solution by person exegesis, if not explicit ek prosopu language, can be solidly anchored in the text of the New Testament itself. Peter's application of Psalm 16 to Jesus is a perfect example. You will not abandon my soul to death, nor let your Holy One see corruption. How could David be the speaker, Peter asked, when his tomb is here among us? The words must be heard as coming from the mouth of Christ, that is, from his person. The same applies to Psalm 110 and the exaltation to God's right hand, for David did not ascend into heaven, Peter argues. Bates' work belongs within a broader current of New Testament study, at once strongly attracted by the basic claims of the early high Christology school, yet also in various ways dissatisfied. The effort is broadly to better explain both the origins and the character of the primitive Christian reconfiguration of Jewish monotheism. Crispin Fletcher Lewis is probably the most important voice, but others could be mentioned. Fletcher Lewis, for his part, means to give more place to those mediator figures than Richard Bauckham has, uh, that Richard Bauckham, for instance, has marginalized. Bates, without entirely knowing what to do with Bauckham, nevertheless has concerns with his, quote, divine identity language, and prefers what, on the basis of this prosopological model, he promisingly calls a, quote, Christology of divine persons. Focus upon solution by person exegesis undoubtedly permits an alluring dialogical articulation of divine relations, in contrast to the unity intoned in Bauckham's notion of divine identity. To the extent that a diversity of dramatis personae thus find place within Bates' project, it is hospitable to the work of Fletcher Lewis. Bates even invokes Melchizedek in 11Q13, a document from the Dead Sea Scrolls, as a divine figure constructed through a prosopological reading of Psalm 110 in exact parallel to Christ. To my mind, this contention is raw speculation, but I will return to this below. It suffices here to observe that the easy adoption by Sabellian authors 
of prosopon mask language and the associated exegesis was shown by Anderson and highlights the need for clear philosophical underpinnings, whatever dimension of God's tri-unity we mean to explore. This would indeed be my own main concern with anachronistic talk of, quote, divine identity, namely its careful adoption as a conscious rejection of the ontologically indispensable and authentically ancient concept of nature or essence. Borrowed from Hans Frey, the narrative notion of divine identity introduces a basic confusion, endeavoring to answer a neo-Aryan question with quasi-Cyrillian language from another debate. And I say that knowing that Richard knows of my esteem. This lands us on hypostasis. And I would add here in support of reintroducing the category of person into exegesis, a fact noted neither by uh, Anderson nor by Bates. Lucis ex case physios, solution by nature, that is attributing logia to the human or divine nature of Christ respectively, was the inevitable Christian development of pagan prosopological reading. Have a glance at Augustine on the Psalms and you will see this happen. Unfortunately, in his enthusiasm to establish his model as the decisive shape of Trinitarian interpretation, Bates adopts a needlessly dismissive posture towards other forms of Christological thought. Bates, noting the much greater role that typological and allegorical perspectives have classically played, as well as the ways prosopological interpretation risks discarding the sensus liberalis, Christopher cites, thus wonders, why Bates seems unwilling to share the terrain with a fuller range of exegetical models. The point is well made. For the depth and nuance of Trinitarian doctrine is not served by narrowing its biblical base. It is revealing to observe in just this connection the inadequacies of prosopological exegesis taken alone. Neither Barnabas, the letter of Barnabas, nor Justin, the martyr, nor Theophis of Antioch, nor even Irenaeus himself, elsewhere in his writings, depicts a trinity of characters in the plural forms of Genesis 1.26. For example, envisioning simply the converse between father and son. It is a dialogue. The graphic imagery of 2.7, with its anthropomorphically imagined pair of hands, seems to supply an essential Trinitarian key, reversing for a moment the invisibility of the spirit. Accordingly, by the time Tertullian, in his Adversus Praxeam, first, for the first time, explicitly names the, the spirit as tertia persona in the celestial conversation at creation, the tripersonal reading had already been grounded through Irenaeus' innovative fusion of allegorical and prosopological interpretations. Such theologically fruitful blending of an image-based and a speech-based exegetical logic is suggestive in grasping something of the structure of Revelation itself. Without endorsing some post-rational boogeyman of, quote, logocentrism, exegetes and theologians would accordingly do well to reflect on the so-called iconic term and the corresponding Bildwissenschaft announced by Gottfried Bern. The essential Trinitarian theophany underscores the point through the visible presence of the likeness of a dove at Christ's baptism, 
In Bates' rendering, this dove vanishes completely before the disembodied words of Psalm 2, spoken to Christ's ex persona patri. You are my son, today I have begotten you. His dialogical, person-based exegesis, accordingly, remains binitarian in form. When Bulgakov, by contrast, says that, quote, the Holy Spirit was revealed as a dove because this image most resembled both the Holy Spirit and Christ the Lord, he is playing on a patristic trope. The magisterial commentary of Cyril of Alexandria on this scene, the baptism, for instance, perceives the identity of divine nature shared between both Son and Spirit precisely in the fact that Jesus, like a dove, is gentle and humble of heart. It is precisely this gentle nature, moreover, that allows the Spirit to remain and dwell with the human race, which in Christ no longer chases it away as it was forced to fly from the first Adam. For the Holy Spirit of wisdom will flee deceit, Cyril recalls. Unity of essence and trinity of persons are grasped only through the fruitful conjunction of image and word. For Bates, in unacknowledged debt to both von Balthasar and Kevin Van Fuser, the spirit is essentially the silent scriptwriter of a theodrama, staged between the father and the son. This binitarian drift is to some degree endemic to the psalmic form that dominates the texts most susceptible to a person-centered exegesis. Tertullian is bolder than Bates, however. In Adversus Praxeon, he specifically lists three scriptures where the Holy Spirit speaks out loud and in his proper person, noting in parentheses that there are plenty more. The first instance Tertullian lists is the famous Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath my feet, beneath your feet. Peter in Acts 2 also handled this one, dismissing David, who never ascended to God's right hand, as we saw. Who then is speaking? The key feature betraying the Spirit's voice, for Tertullian, is the doubling of the name Lord, at least in Latin and Greek. This naturally suggests a third-party observer, who here reports the speech of two others from outside their dialogical frame. Insofar as imagining the Father calling the Son, my Lord, is not congenial to Tertullian's subordinationist thought, he inevitably discerns here instead the Spirit's voice. Thus, the syntactic and Trinitarian grammars intersect precisely in what is spoken ex tertia persona. It must be remembered that the self-concealing, it must be remarked, that the self-concealing character of the Spirit is revealed even if we follow Tertullian. For what the Spirit says for himself is simply and precisely the word that the Father addresses to the Son, sit at my right hand. The Spirit is hence a kind of resonance, an exact external echo of the dialogue between Father and Son. In this sense, the Spirit ecstatically confirms their father-son relation. The Spirit strengthens the unshakable character of the Father's word, conferring on it the quality of an oath. The Lord has sworn an oath he will not change, the Spirit prefaces, before repeating the words addressed to the Son, you are a priest forever. It is in harmony with this that, though hidden behind the drama passing between Father and Son, 
in self-effacing service to the amplification of their exchange, the spirit nevertheless also somehow comes to direct and unique expression, offering his own word. In this case, it is addressed to the Father as a word that seals and accomplishes the message he first sent forth. Sit at my right hand, O Son, speaks the Father in verse 1 through the Spirit. The Lord is at your right hand, O Father, the Spirit replies in verse 5, perfecting the circle in his own persona. If this matter of reading carries us far from what would be considered professionally sanctioned modern practice, Hans-Joachim Krauss at least begins his classic commentary on Psalm 110 with the same perennial question, wer redet, who is speaking? Bates, for his part, ultimately means to attribute the prosopological exegesis of this Psalm 110 to, quote, the historically plausible Jesus himself. If I have pushed the pneumatological solution by person logic much farther than Bates, I would nevertheless prefer again to broaden the perspective. For while Jesus certainly identified himself as a participant within various biblical dialogues, including very importantly the enthronement Psalms 2 and 110, Christ's interpretive self-detection inside the sacred text did not stop at the exegesis of biblical conversations but extends to every shape and manner of prophecy. I have found useful the language of anagnoresis, which in Greek means both reading and recognition, to describe Jesus' plenary self-perception within every jot and tittle of the scriptures, alternately as object, audience, and speaker. I take this as a foundational principle, in fact. Christ, reading the scriptures, is the incarnate word regarding his own image in a mirror inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Son knowing himself from the outside through the speculum scripturae. If I call plenary Jesus' intelligence of the scriptures in order to secure theologically his status as revealer, there's certainly nothing wrong or new in singling out Psalm 110 the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Scholars like Bauckham and Martin Hengel, for instance, have leaned heavily upon this psalm to explain the origins of so-called Christological monotheism. Bauckham is rather less venturesome than Bates, however, and I would say rightly so. For congenial, as is the latter's effort to detect here Jesus' robust self-awareness of his pre-existence, the strong dependence of Bates' argument on the divergent Septuagint tradition, an issue, in fact, throughout Bates' book, severely cripples the plausibility of his historically plausible Jesus. Bates' effort to buttress his case by appeal to 11Q13, already mentioned, which he cites as precedent for Jesus' matter of reading, is dubious on the face and evaporates if one reads the argument of the article he cites. With its disappearance, we also lose a firm Palestinian hold. Thus, without overdrawing an outmoded and useless dichotomy, greater caution about the Hellenistic pedigree and context of the lucis ectu uh, prosopu is also in order. It is no accident that Acts and the letter to the Hebrews are the two main New Testament loci where the practice is found. 
Falcom saw the issues with more clarity 20 years ago, Larian stressed precisely on the contrast between the huge importance Psalm 110 holds in early Christian reception and its near-complete neglect within the Jewish milieu. Yet this discrepancy likely owes as much to the linguistic factor as anything, for in Hebrew the psalm is frankly less impressive. The double Greek kurios mystifies two perfectly distinct Hebrew characters, the tetragrammaton and Adonai, who share neither a single name nor unambiguously sit upon a single throne. The former's begetting of the latter before the morning star also disappears like the morning dew. I have no fetish about the MT, the Masoretic text, and do not exclude the possibility of some text-critical deus ex machina, but the ground here will always be uncomfortably shaky. If Jews of the period saw little in the text, as Bauckham emphatically insists, what then drew Jesus to it? I would like to propose an alternative way to come at this text, a kind of archaeology of Christological anagnoresis, suitable, I submit, for any historically plausible Jesus. It coheres against a grid of visual logic and opens the doors to the plenary intelligence I have invoked, situating the psalm within a much larger scriptural vision. We may take as two fixed points of departure two broadly accepted exegetical acts. First, Jesus cites Psalm 110, not only in the question about David's son, but a second time in answering the high priest before his passion, but now in conjunction with Daniel 7.13 and the coming Son of Man. It is the shared image of enthronement, not any shtikvart, not any word uh, shared between the passages, that brings these two texts into connection. Iconic logic is thus already at work, assembling a biblical base. Second, Jesus also identifies himself as the stone rejected by the builders in Psalm 118, just after the parable of the vineyard. These two seemingly distant scriptural self-descriptions, Daniel's son of man and the rejected stone of Psalm 118, together point very forcibly to one common, yet concealed, messianic text. The stone, not hewn by hand, in Daniel 2. In perfect parallel to the one like a son of man in Daniel 7, the mysterious stone in chapter 2 enters the visionary drama to mark the final end of the sequence of four world empires. We have two images, two visions, that parallel uh, in perfect harmony. For any ancient reader, the linkage of the two visions with their parallel characters would have been automatic. Hippolytus, in fragment four on Daniel, makes explicit that ancient readers indeed saw the two visions and two figures as one. Josephus records a popular Hebrew play on words between sun and stone, ben and eben, which would only have reinforced the connection. As for Psalm 118, the link here is not only the stone image itself, but above all, the odd fact that it is not quarried. Luke 20.18 confirms the logic holding these two particular texts together by adding to Mark's parable of the vineyard an open allusion to Daniel 2. For Ezra and Josephus finally both confirm the messianic character of this Danielic stone. When Jesus thus circles around this text, 
in a kind of exegetical enthymeme, it is hard not to find him making the same connections as other ancient readers. Where then does this bring us? To an aniconic, iconic turn, if the expression be permitted. For the action of the unhewn stone in crushing the Colossus is not merely triumphalist David and Goliath messianism. We remember the vision, the stone unhewn uh, smashes this, uh, uh, this fourfold statue, although it is that, David and Goliath. He will shatter kings on the day of his great wrath. The statue seen by Nebuchadnezzar and crushed by the stone is cast precisely as an idol, a false image, and not a typical Babylonian bearded bull at that, but a simulacrum of the imago dei, a human form. When the stone that demolishes this image is described in Daniel 2.45 as being cut la biyadain, without two hands, dual in the Aramaic, we thus have stumbled on the backside of a monotheistic polemical topos. The stone sun is being consciously contrasted with those false images of wood and stone that are the works of human hands. But like the unhewn sacred stele of the ancient Near East, or the altar in the temple, which could not be hewn, it is the hands of God that have directly shaped this event. The sacred stone that brings down the statue replaces the idolatrous image as the God-made locus of true worship. And the mountain that grows out of the stone is widely recognized to be the image of a temple, a Babylonian ziggurat recalling the world dominance of Mount Zion. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be greatly exalted. The temple was seen in Tanaitic tradition to be the work of God's hands, to a still greater degree than his work in creation. When the Holy One, blessed be he, created his world, he created it with but one hand. As it is said, Isaiah 48, Yea, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. But when he came to build the temple, he did it, as it were, with both his hands. As it is said, Thy sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. We have here something greater than Genesis Imago. A cultic, and not merely a military dominion, is being depicted in the stone's victorious elevation over the collapsed, may we say fallen, image of man. On cue in Daniel 2.46, Nebuchadnezzar drops in worship, confessing the one true God. In identifying himself with Daniel's iconoclastic and imageless work of God's hands, Jesus makes a mysterious messianic claim about his more than human origin and about his mission. He who was reported to say that he would build a sanctuary a karapoyeton, not made by hands, identifies himself through Daniel 2 and Psalm 18 as being the very cornerstone of that eschatological temple. This identification transpires, moreover, within as strident a second temple monotheistic discourse as we might ever wish to find. Daniel, too, is determined to say that no mere human should be worshipped. In this context, Jesus' graphic self-depiction as the divinely fashioned image and as the living foundation of a post-exilic temple fit to triumphantly bear the Shekinah is not so dissimilar to Paul's operation with the divine name in Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 8. But on several counts, it is a new way of envisioning Christological 
or with Fletcher Lewis, Jesus, monotheism. It certainly respects the biblical idom as boldly as divine identity seeks to do. Were we to push this agglutinative process of visual logic, it could take us quite far, quite quickly. Isaiah's cornerstone, Zechariah's stone of seven facets, even the itinerant stone gushing water in the desert. One picture leads to another as the Christological portrait accumulates ever new dimensions, accenting both the divine essence and personal distinction, and importantly, also the human nature of Christ. Yet we can leave this work to the authors of the New Testament and the Fathers, who admirably perceived and advanced the scriptural pressure to borrow an idea of Reverend Childs. It suffices to say that Jesus approached the scriptures in a similar way to these ancient readers, generating vast webs of interpenetrating associations, with the great difference that, unlike these other readers, he ever placed himself in the center of the mise-en-scene. To call the sun a stone is to work on the order of metaphor, not analogous predication, we may happily acknowledge with a nod to Summa Question 1. Anthropomorphism, in the strict sense, is a slightly different matter. It paints, in prophetic words, the historical humanization of God. This invites a new depth of seriousness about the sensus literalis. For when Psalm 118 is prayed in the person and mouth of the sun, it must be heard through the communicatio idiomatum. The right hand of the Lord works wonders. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord is Jesus' right hand, enthroned at the Father's right hand on high. Where is the one who put within them his Holy Spirit, Ruach, who caused his glorious arm to march at the right hand of Moses? asks a mysterious voice in Isaiah 63. Once upon a time, the right hand of Moses, stretched over the sea, revealed the mighty, outstretched hand of God. Is it by the finger of God, an open allusion to Moses, or by the Holy Spirit that Jesus cast out demons and reveals the reign of God among us? Matthew and Luke are not agreed, yet both are right. Two hands belong to that uncreated image, who is both the power and wisdom and the human organum organorum of God. Whoever is speaking in Isaiah 63, the arm belongs to the one who also gives his spirit, his Holy Spirit. It is the arm of the one who comes up from Edom, splashing his garments with the blood of the grape. To win victory, he says, all alone and with his very own hands. Thank you. I gave with this, this ancient philosophical topos that, that understands, that makes a play on word between mens and manus, for instance, Augustine, 
Um, I think it's, it's interesting also in this question of measure. So in, in wisdom, the book of wisdom, 1120, for instance, God creates by number and order and measure. Um, and th this is why I, I find particularly evocative uh, Irenaeus move to, to introduce this text which connects wisdom and, and hands uh, precisely with the, the notion uh, of the word as metron, okay, um, of the uh, immensum patrum. This is, this is very, very evocative that um, the way that God is measured is both through his wisdom and then you have this ridiculous but fascinating um, tradition in, in, uh, in the Jewish context uh, of that operation uh, being executed also by a hypothesized hand. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a philosophical way at coming at this, um, and I think there's um, a, a pattern in revealed text in which we're given, we're given imagery and uh, we're, giving, we're, we're given uh, dialogue, logos, um, and God is acting in tandem, uh, and it's a, it's, it's a pedagogy uh, in the nature of revelation. It, yes. It's it, the, the the final point, of course, is is trying to invest in this literal sense um, a prophetic dimension um, that we can hear this in a new way from the fact that he took on a real hand. Run to your uh, analogy here at the end uh, of the very moment. Is it a good or anything? I don't know it exactly the form. Thank you. That 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 is behind it. The the, the form I quoted is uh, the Makilkut Rabbi Ishmael, um, which is the earliest form, uh, which is the only reason I uh, I adopted that. But I'm I'm very much interested in the pressure of these texts, um, which is exactly the point uh, that that I was making. Even even if Metatron is completely useless as a parallel, in some ways there's there's an agglutinative character to weigh these. These theologies are created, uh, and that that can only be uh, divine through following the pressure. So, following the history of, uh, of a text like that, I think shows us the same thing. Yeah. 